All right, good morning, church. So let me invite you to go ahead and open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. And here we are, verse 17. Let's study God's word together. It says this. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to the likeness, God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Let me pray as we get started. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for, in your providence, uh, an opportunity to begin to come back to campus and resume a semblance of physical gatherings where we see each other, we hear each other sing. We know that there are many in our church family that will not be possible for them or even wise for them in coming days, but we pray for grace on this new season, this new phase of our life as a church. We want to continue to be abiding biblically. Whether we're here in the room or we're live streaming, we want to be anchored in your word, rooted in your word, attentive to your word in our personal lives. We want to live holy lives. We want to make a difference in this world. We want to shine as lights in the city of Birmingham and among all the nations for the glory of Jesus Christ. Help us to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wonder if, how many of you have done maybe a project? So lots of people have been doing do-it-yourself projects these past few weeks to keep ourselves busy, and right? Uh, we've done some stuff in our backyard. Maybe when you've done do-it-yourself projects, one of the things that we'll frequently do uh, is we'll post a before picture and an after picture. Even if you don't post it, you still, you want to see what did it look like before I started and what did it look like when I was done. So our backyard, since we moved into this house in 2012, our backyard has looked like a, a post-apocalyptic backyard. It's just, just a dead zone, barren zone. The guy that we bought the house from, he said, look, I'm just telling you moving in, I've never been able to make grass grow in the backyard of this house. I don't know what the deal is, the shade or whatnot, but it, grass won't grow in the backyard. So we've been looking at a backyard that is just dirt for these past eight years, and it's got like little tufts of brown grass that are even sadder. It's, it's even worse than just seeing the dirt. Just these tufts of brown grass trying, right? They're just working, but they're not getting anywhere. So we, we finally, we called in the big shots. We called in a friend who do, who's at Brook Hills, and he does this for a living, and we just said, just come to my backyard and just look at this and just get a vision or something, right? And he, he looks at it and he says, here's the problem, you're trying to grow the wrong kind of grass. And so he told us, here's what you need to do. You need some grading work because you've got an erosion issue. You need this kind of grass. I can put it in next weekend, right? So next thing you know, we do the project and I wish I had taken a before and after picture that I could actually show you because what I do now every morning, this is now two months later after the project's been done, 
is I sit down first thing early in the morning, I make myself a cup of coffee, and I put it right there on the kitchen table looking out the back window, and I look at my grass. And it is just so delightful, just, just this green, I don't want to cut it. It's just green, just flourishing grass back there, right? There's a before and there's an after. There's a dramatic difference between, between what I saw and what I'm, what I'm seeing. Ephesians 4 is talking about that. Ephesians 4, Paul is saying, here's the before picture, here's the after picture. Here's what you were before you met Jesus. Here's what you look like now by God's grace. He's showing you the dramatic difference. It's not just a difference in beliefs. You put your trust in Jesus, your beliefs change. There's a before and after in what you believe and what you live for. But your actions change, your words change, your attitudes, your motivations, everything. There's this massive, drastic difference between the before and the after. Ephesians, so put, where are we in this book? We're in Ephesians chapter 4. Where have we come from? We've walked through Ephesians 1 through 3. Ephesians 1 through 3 says, you are different because God has singled you out by grace and has done some awesome, glorious things in your life. Now, as we pivot to Ephesians 4 through 6, Paul is saying, now that you're different, here's how you live. This is what the after picture looks like. Practically, on the ground, when the wheels come down and the rubber meets the road, this is the difference grace has made in your life. And Paul's going to get really, so next week we're going to dig into the next text, which is where Paul gets really specific about the actions of believers, the words and attitudes of believers. But here in verse 17 through 24, God through Paul is helping us to see the before and after pictures. And he begins by talking about what were you before. Here's point number one. And here's the reason we needed an overhaul. Number one, sin affects the way we think. Sin affects the way we think. Look down at verse 17. I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live. And notice he, he instantly goes to the mind. In the futility of their thoughts, they're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. So we know that the sin affects the mind all the way back there in Genesis chapter 3, when everything went sideways, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, they sinned against God, and their mindset changed. There was sin that entered into the whole way of thinking, distorted ways of thinking. Sin messed up everything. It messed up their marriage. It messed up the family, right? It, it, it unleashed pride and lust and anger and envy and greed. All this stuff just came barreling into the world as a result of the fall, which is to say that sin didn't just affect the things that we do, it didn't just affect the things that we say, sin affected the way that we think, it affected the control center of our lives, our soul, our mind, our will. You see the language there again, verse 17, futility of their thoughts, you see the language in verse 18, darkened in their understanding, and then he uses the word ignorance, the, the ignorance that he's talking about here isn't predominantly a function of intelligence. It's not like Adam and Eve sinned and then they didn't know what two plus two equals. It's not like their mental capacities were instantly changed in that kind of way. No, they could still think. We still, all throughout the world, believers and unbelievers alike make incredible discoveries of science and mathematics and art. We're still capable of tremendous products for good rationality, moral judgments, right? 
all of that is still intact in some way, but there's yet, there's a, there's a hardness of heart, there's a mindset, if you will, of resistance to God. That's what he's talking about. Look at verse, rather, let me read this to you. This is Romans chapter 8. This is what Paul says in another place, and it really echoes, it's almost a parallel text, Romans chapter 8, verse 6. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is, note these words, hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Doesn't want to submit to God's law, resistant to God's rule in our lives, and in a way, unable to see it another way. I want control. I don't know how many ways I can tell you. I want the throne that belongs to God. That's what, that's what our willfulness says before we encounter Jesus Christ. Here's the point in your notes. Before we're saved, our minds are not willing to submit to what God says. That's our natural condition, right? Apart from God's grace, that's, that's the way it is. I don't want God's agenda for my life. I'm happy if he wants to sign on for my agenda, but I don't want God to come in and tell me which way is up, which way is down, what's right and what's wrong. I want to play by my own rules. I want to set the agenda for my own life. But here's the next truth in our notes. When we meet Jesus Christ, it changes the way we think. That's why the Bible says so much, friends, about the life of the mind. It says so much about the formation of a Christian mind. Disciple, the the Greek word mathetes, it comes from the word from which we get mathematics. It means learner. You're here to learn. You're here to sponge truth from Jesus, sponge truth from his word. It comes into the mind and then is fired by the Holy Spirit down into the heart, changes our lives. It doesn't bypass the mind. The mind is critical. That's why the question comes to Jesus. Age-old question, what's the most important thing in life? And what does Jesus say? He says the same thing that was said 2,000 years earlier, 1,500 years earlier by Moses. Here's the most important thing. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The formation of a Christian mind. It's why The writer of Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If you want to grow in wisdom, you need to know God and know him deeply. That's why he reveals himself to us in his words. This is why as a church, we're not scared of theology. We're hungry for theology. We're not scared of truth. We want the truth. We're hungry for the truth. The, The material that the Holy Spirit loves to use to form us up into the image of Christ, to make us immovable in the faith, is the truth. It's not some other substance out there. He takes the truth of the word, impresses it upon the heart, impresses it upon the mind, and creates new people. A before and after picture is a result. This is why in God's word, we receive a curriculum, really, for our thought life. In Philippians chapter four, it might be familiar to you. Whatsoever things are, and then there's this list, right? Pure and lovely and praiseworthy and of a good report. And it says, think about Mull it over, meditate on, give your mind space and time to think about these things. It's a curriculum for our thought life, formation of a Christian mind. I love what Ligon Duncan, a theologian and pastor, said. He said, the idea is for the truth to so take hold of our desires that we begin to desire the right thing 
rather than the wrong thing, the permanent thing rather than the temporary thing, the lovely thing rather than the ugly thing, the true thing rather than the false thing. And Paul is saying to his Ephesian brothers and sisters, and God is saying to us through the Apostle Paul, right, through these writings, God has a bigger, higher purpose across the history of the church to speak to my life and your life and to say what? Before you were saved, you knew all kinds of stuff. Before you were saved, you might have been crazy smart. Awesome, great, that's a gift of God. Continue to use it and steward it for his glory. But you didn't know the most important thing. You didn't know God. You didn't revere him as God. You might have had mental categories for there's a God out there, but you didn't know him. You didn't know his son's name. You didn't know true things about God that you could sink your teeth into, that God is just, that he is holy, that he is perfect, that he knows the past, the present, and the future, that he is not just just, but he is the justifier of all who believe in Jesus Christ. You didn't know that the only way to be reconciled to a holy God was through the blood shed by his only son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. You didn't know that. And that is the biggest paramount ignorance in the world because it changes your life when those truths set fire in your thoughts and in your heart. Here, here's the reality, why we need to know truth about God and it needs to take hold in the mind because of this. What you believe about God is currently directing your life. What you truly believe, not your creeds, not what you say you believe, what you actually believe about God is right now determining the direction of your life for good or ill. It's doing that. So we're a Caring Well Church this past year. We've been talking about what does it look like for us to be a church that's safe for survivors and safe from abuse. So I've met abusive husbands who twist God's word to oppress their wives, to bring oppression into their homes. They hijack Bible verses and weaponize them against their family. Right? That's, a, that's a belief. The actions are downstream of beliefs, heretical beliefs about who God is. And what happens? They give themselves to that idea. They justify that idea, and then their heart becomes callous. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 4. Their heart becomes callous. There's a kind of willing blindness due to their hardness of heart. It happens in all kinds of areas. Beliefs lead to behaviors, this is why we need, friends, we need the Bible to correct us, to admonish us, to tweak us, to turn us. I need the Bible to do that on a regular basis. If the Bible has stopped turning you, tweaking you, adjusting you, and correcting you, something's wrong, right? Because sin affects the way that we think, and that's why we need God's Word to wash over our minds, renewing our minds more and more. So we need a mind informed by God's Word because sin affects the way we think, We need a mind informed by God's word, point number two, because our thinking affects the way we live. Our thinking affects the way we live. Look at verse 19. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. So Ephesus at this time in the first century, it was was one of the largest, most influential cosmopolitan cities in the first century Roman Empire. You wanted to go places, Ephesus was one of the places you wanted to be because Ephesus had everything on the offer. Ephesus had spiritual experiences on the offer. Ephesus had money and merchant 
wealth and business opportunities all over the place, right? Every kind of sinful pleasure that you could possibly want in first century Roman Empire, you can find it here in Ephesus. We've got the billboards to tell you what streets they're on, right? That's first century Ephesus, which if you think about it for a second, isn't far from where we live now. There's nothing new under the sun. This isn't the first time these kinds of things have happened in culture and in cities. You think about our culture right now here in America. In America, we're witnessing the rise of a number of, a kind of triple threat, three things. An undefined spirituality, a self-defined morality, and a self-determined sexuality. It's kind of triple threat. I'll go through them again. Undefined spirituality. So it's this sort of vague, God is good, whoever he or she is, right? This undefined, nebulous spirituality that's just actually trendy right now. Undefined spirituality, self-defined morality, and self-determined sexuality. Bottom line, what's all that lingo mean? It means you can do what you want, when you want, with whom you want, and you can still have God. That's sort of the recipe for the good life in America, these two statements, they're in your notes, and they're becoming almost mottos in a post-Christian culture. Believe your own truth. Heard that before? Believe your own truth. Live your own life. Believe your own truth. Live your own life. You believe that, it's going to affect the way you live. If that becomes your operating principle. No universal truths. No accountability. No one standard of right and wrong. That's going to shape the way that you and I live our lives. But here's the deal. Look, um, the Bible doesn't bow to that. The Bible confronts that for the sake of our own transformation so that we can have a before and after picture. The Bible says, I'm going to tell you the truth. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to fit first century Ephesus. It's not going to fit 21st century America. But I'm going to bring it straight down the middle. Here's the truth. Look, Ephesians 4 is unashamedly binary. It is annoyingly clear. It, there's a fork in the road installed by the apostle. Boom, it's a fork in the road. You go this way, you die. You go this way, you live. This way to the old life, this way to the new life. This way to futility and ignorance, this way to new life with Jesus Christ. It is a fork in the road. There's no two other options. There's two ways to live. Driven by deceitful desires, verse 22, or a mind that's renewed through the Holy Spirit, verse 23. That's why we need God's word. When, when God's word no longer sits at the command center of my thoughts, what do I do? Instead of taking off my former way of life and putting on a new way of life, I take off my former way of life and then I start to put all that stuff right back on. Right? I put all my old clothes, all my first century Ephesus culture, all my 21st century godless American culture and I start robing up. Right? I start getting back dressed in what it was that I was before I met Jesus, before I was singled out by God's grace. I love this quote. I think it sheds light. Ted and Margie Tripp in their book on parenting, Instructing Your Child's Heart, they write these words. When people live without a clear, consistent presentation of biblical reality, their sinful nature will read and interpret reality for them. Their hearts will cut a path that satisfies their lusts and desires to serve themselves. That's what Paul's talking about here. He, he talks about the, the people giving themselves over for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Let me tell you, 
say to you, Christian brother, Christian sister, don't let anger take over in your heart and in your mind. Don't let lust control you. By God's grace, read Romans 6. saying, don't present the members of your bodies as instruments for unrighteousness, but for righteousness. As slaves to God and to Christ by his grace, don't let the ends justify the means. Why? Because you're different now. You're not what you were before. You don't ever get to be that again. You've been made new by the grace of God. It's forward with Jesus, forward in the power of the Holy Spirit, forward with the transformation of his word in our minds and hearts. So grasp these truths, Christian friend, with both hands. I'll put it the negative way. Grasp these truths with both hands. Sin promises to give us pleasure, but the pleasure never lasts, right? We've experienced that. Sin promises to take the pain away, and the pain just comes right back. We've lived that, we've experienced that. Sin promises to free us, and the whole time it's promising, it's tying us up, right, in in bondage. That's what sin does, it promises to satisfy us, but then we keep needing more and more and more, and it's like, I thought it was gonna satisfy me, and sin says, it'll satisfy you tomorrow. Let's do this, I'll check you out, I'll be back four o'clock tomorrow, and next time it'll satisfy, right? Sin is lying to us, and believing its lies affects the way that we live our lives. Ephesians 4 is talking about. That's why in your notes, this truth, if our lives are gonna change, our thinking needs to change. If our lives are gonna change, our thinking needs to change. This is why Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's why the apostles, Paul said, the way to holiness, the pursuit of holiness, that's not just moralism and you kind of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Paul says, I wanna get you to the to be conformed to the image of Christ, here's how you're gonna get there. Let your mind be renewed and transformed by God's word. Sin affects the way we think. Our thinking affects the way we live. But meeting Jesus changes everything. Number three, meeting Jesus changes everything. Follow along, look at verse 20. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught about him as the truth is in Jesus. To take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. In other words, You read verse 20 through 24, what is Paul saying? He's saying you're different now. You are not what you once were. You've been changed by the grace of God. Can, let me just ask you the question, Christian friend, can the world see the difference? When they look at my life, when they look at your life, can they see a before and an after picture? Is it barren, dry, tufts of brown grass, and then foliage, something growing, something beautiful, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. There's something springing up from the ground and you're not making it happen, but the Holy Spirit is working in our lives because we've been transformed. We're not what we were before. Professor Gregory Wills, professor of church history for many years, he went to to Duke, he went to Emory University and studied this, and so he writes extensively, often scholarly works on history, focused particularly on church history, Christian history. 
and he wrote a book about a revival that took place uh, in 1837 in Georgia. And he tells all kinds of interesting stories about what transpired there on your, in Christian um, context about 200 years ago. He tells a story about a young lady who came to faith. Her name was Caroline. Everybody called her Carrie. And she was just radically converted, just parted with her old life, threw it aside and said, I want to follow Jesus. Just the Lord gave her a new heart. She came to Christ with this great deal of conviction. Here's what she said in her own testimony, quote, I desire to be even more devoted to my Savior than I have ever been to the world. Man, that is beautiful. More devoted to my Savior than I ever was to the world. And there at the riverside, right, that's where the baptisms happened a couple hundred years ago. There at the riverside, Carrie was going to be baptized that day. And her friend, Julia, was there. And Julia could not understand. Julia was not converted, did not want to follow Christ, and could not understand why would you change the life we've had, the joy that we've had to follow this way of life. And somebody was there in 1837 and recorded the event. And here's what it said, quote, The banks of that little stream were lined with crowds of interested spectators. Julia of Monticello, her bosom friend and companion in her worldly course, seemed loath to leave her even for a moment, picture this, and clung to her till she reached the water's edge. A hymn was sung and Minister C.D. Mallory made a few remarks and offered prayer when Minister John Dawson took Carolyn by the hand and led her down the shelving bank into the stream. They had attained about half the desired depth when she requested him to stop a moment and turning to those on the bank, waving her hand, she said, farewell, young friends. Farewell, Julia. And the effect was electrical. The whole audience convulsed and tears rained down from eyes unused to weeping. Upon coming up out of the water, Julia rushed forward to meet her friend, embracing her and crying out in agonizing tones, Oh, Carrie, you must not leave me. Mr. Dawson, pray for me. Mr. Mallory, pray for me. Radical. Before and after. Her life was different now. Everything had changed because God had brought himself to bear on her life. Let me ask you this question. Did your faith in Jesus Christ spell the end of what you lived for before? Did your faith in Jesus Christ spell the end of what you lived for before? If not, God, I believe in this passage, is saying, come with me. Come into the real thing. I want you to have the real experience. Look, your, your old life with some church attendance sprinkled on top is not what God has intended for us. My old life with some Jesus sprinkled in, right, with some devotional thoughts every other morning sprinkled in, that is not New Testament Christianity. That's a poor substitute for what genuine Christianity is supposed to be. It's a poor substitute for the, the life-changing things that happen when your personal biography slams into the cross of Jesus Christ and comes barreling out of the empty tomb. That's supernatural Christianity. And suddenly you find yourself saying, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life that I lived before is 
gone. Old thing is gone. Old clothes are off. New clothes are on. I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. That that's what Christianity is talking about. That's what biblical faith is all about, where you get your sins forgiven. You get your mind changed, your heart changed, your shame is erased. Glorious truth. God claims you forever as his child. That's biblical gospel, right? You start to sing with that old hymn, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. Forever his child. What do you do? Like if not stepped into that experience, what do you what do? You, do? You, you repent and believe. You turn from what it is that you're facing and you walk in Christ's direction and he holds out his arms and he says, justification is free. I'll cleanse you of all your sins. I died on the cross in your place. Come and put your faith and trust in me. Believe the gospel. Look, when we see him truly, our lives are changed. When we see him truly, what we were living for before looks so futile. It looks so shallow. Why could I think that that was the be-all, end-all of my existence? As the hymn writer would say, when we meet Jesus, the things of earth grow what? Strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let me just add one word of caution because I think there is a lurking Phariseeism in passages like this, right, where we're looking at the messed up ways of the world, the futility of their thoughts, they're darkened in their understanding, right, and we can read that text and say, yeah, yeah, that's right, that nasty old gross world, right, how, how does one arrive at such a place? So that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is, look, if that spirit is growing in us, we're not actually reading this text the way it was intended. Paul is saying to the Ephesian believers, that's what you were five minutes ago. Darkened in your understanding, futile in your thoughts, ignorant of Jesus, not understanding the claims of Christ in the gospel, right? And that's the way it would have continued if it weren't for, but God showed us mercy. When we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. This next point in your notes, just hold on to this. The seeds of all sin are present in every human being present in every human being. You give me the right set of circumstances, right? You give me that set of circumstances, and if God takes his hands off, I can fall into all the ditches, and so can you. Ironically, texts about the callousness of the world toward God can create callousness in the church toward the world. This kind of sneering condescension toward a world that's lost and dying, but rather than this kind of self-awareness that's humble and that looks at the deepest conditions of sin in our broken world and says, hey, listen, I get it. And I promise you there's a way out. You come with me, come with me. There's life with Jesus. It must sound strange for Paul to say, he's working on this identity thing, right? It must sound strange for him to say, don't live like the Gentiles. I can almost imagine his audience saying, did you forget almost none of us are Jews? Here in Ephesus in the first century, we are Gentiles. That's what we are. And Paul says, no, you're not. That is no longer your primary identity. You're not on the outside looking in. You, in the Old Testament, that's the way it shook out, right? But, but not anymore. Paul says, you have a new identity in Christ. You aren't what you were before. 
You're different now. What's that mean this week? It means you have a new way to speak. Right? Talk about this in your small groups. Lots of people are talking out there right now, right, about the events that are swirling around us all the time. Let's talk about this as a church. Let's look at texts like Ephesians 4 and say, how do we talk as God's possessed people, Holy Spirit-filled people? How do we talk about and display our new life that we have in Jesus Christ? What, what should Christians who reflect the character of a God who is compassionate sound like? What should Christians who reflect the character of a God who is just sound like? What should Christians who want to win the world for Jesus Christ sound like in a cultural moment like we have right now? What should Christians who read texts that say, weep with those who weep, what should Christians sound like? Before and after. There should be a before and there should be an after picture that's dramatically different. You have a new way to speak. You have a new heart. You have new hope in Christ. You have hands and feet that want to reach toward need. That's what we are now. That's the after picture. You don't do that, friends. You don't do that so that you can earn salvation. You do that because you're different now. 